the Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks Insider Thomas Drance here with you, of course. Of course, Drancer also does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, it is a big, big day in the in the hockey world, especially here in Vancouver. I mean, obviously in Tampa and Colorado, but... Because of the impending Hockey Hall of Fame announcement, there's a very, very good chance that uh, a couple of Canucks, maybe three, maybe even more ex-Canucks, if, if Alex McGillney finally gets the call, could be inducted into the Hall of Fame today. So we're going to cover all of that. We will get you the news when it breaks. We're expecting it kind of any moment here from the Hockey Hall of Fame. If the Sedins, if Roberto Luongo are going to get the call today, we'll get that to you as soon as it happens but of course, the Stanley Cup was also handed out last night, which means it's the start of the offseason, which means there is so much to get to, and we will start with the Colorado Avalanche, who put in what for me is going to be a signature performance in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Final, and specifically late in Game 6 of the, of the, the Stanley Cup Final to unseat the back-to-back champion Tampa Bay Lightnings and claim the Stanley Cup. It was a masterful performance from the Colorado Avalanche, particularly after a first period where the plot looked like it was playing out for a Game 7, right? The boa constrictor act of the Tampa Bay Lightning, the, the quick shifts. They, they, they played the latter 15 minutes of that first period like it was playoff overtime, right? And, and it just felt like, oh, here we go again. This Tampa Bay Lightning team that knows how to win doing Tampa Bay Lightning team stuff. And then right off the drop of the puck in the second, it was all abs. All laughs. And, you know, the McKinnon goal, I know that the Tampa Bay Lightning were frustrated because, I guess, the penalty call, uh, you know, should it have been blown dead when Nick Paul touched it, whatever. I thought it was fine. I didn't think that was a, a bad goal by any means. But the way that the Avs just hemmed them in for several minutes prior to that, right, just took over the game. Just, you know, again, they unfurled their predator pose where they just, like, got big, bared their teeth, and they're this biggest, scariest team in the league, even even for the Tampa Bay Lightning. When the Colorado Avalanche threw their fastball this season, no one connected. No one connected, period. No one connected. No one could reliably hit their fastball. Tampa Bay Light- the Tampa Bay Lightning won two games. They lost in overtime. They lost two one-goal games for the Avalanche third and fourth wins of this series, and yet there was an inevitability to the entire proceedings. It was clear that the Colorado Avalanche had a gear that the Lightning couldn't match. And when you look at the series as a whole, there's some crooked numbers. You know, the Avs had a 60% control of expected goals, five on five, in the Stanley Cup final against the back Against a champs. really, really good team. You know, uh, Bowen Byram, like with Bowen Byram on the ice... The Avs outshot, um, they had like 65% control of shots. It was like 79-4 and 48 against. Ridiculous. And this Avalanche team built around speed, you know, that changed direction in about 2017 and began to build a different type of team. Uh, They were ultimately too much. There was too much octane there. Like, they were too high octane for anyone to contain reliably. They showed it again last night, and and it wasn't just that early second period stretch. It was the perfect third, the third period, pe- as you so said. I think there's two things that flawless. Are it was stick, a flawless third period. Two things that are going to stick out to me, you know, years down the road about this Colorado run. 
One is just Kale McCarr's overall performance through, through the whole postseason. We'll talk about that. Obviously, he wins the Conn Smythe in unanimous fashion. But I think the second one is that third period. It was perfect. It, it was, you know, we've talked about it a lot. You were just mentioning it. Their ability to find a gear that's higher than anybody else could find in the NHL. And it's one thing to have that in your bag. It's another thing to be able to pull it out on the road with a one-goal lead against the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions in Game 6. Yeah. And they didn't just reach it. It was, as you said, flawless. Perfect. They played the entire period in Tampa Bay's end, nursing a one-goal lead. They played like they were trailing. They played like they played like a team that knew it had to end last night, and it was beautiful to watch. And and look, there's a, there's a lot of lessons that a lot of teams can take from this. There's also a lot of luck that the Colorado Avalanche got along the way. Uh, you know, their their blue line rebuild focusing on, you know, uh, uh, you're not going to make a trade every day. In fact, you probably are only going to see one a decade in the NHL where you get both Bowen Byram and Sam Gerrard yes. for a forward who's a malcontent and doesn't even want to be with your franchise, right? I mean, that's not that's not replicable in my view. Like, we talk a lot about the Canucks need to upgrade their blue line. I think that is their Achilles heel. I think it's obvious that the team needs a ton, and yet... The, the avalanche model for me doesn't offer a way forward. It's like draft a historic defenseman in the top five and then get two other outrageously good young players in the same trade. You know, you could you could replicate the Devin Taves type trade again, but the other three, that's that's not replicable. Well, you me. can replicate the process of the, the Devon Taves trade. It still hit at, you know, close to like the 99th percentile of that, yeah, right? It, it's true, but th- those we see guys move in that manner with some regularity. We, we do. I, you know, the thing that I think teams are, the only thing really remarkable about it was, for me, for me, was not the process so much as the fact that the Islanders made such a brutal misevaluation. During a cycle in which their GM was nominated GM of the year, they prioritized giving up a first, second, and a third for J.P. Pajot at the cost of then having to trade Devon Taves for a lesser return. I mean, that's an epic, epic mistake. Um, hard to put into context just how big an error that was by the New York Islanders. But, you know, that part for me is the most replicable, even though it's outrageous. It, it's the rest of it that's hard. Now, here's... Do you have, so, do you have news we have from the some breaking news. Now, this is interesting. So, we have... I, news. Let's go. So, this is coming in as I speak. I don't believe we have the full class yet. First to be announced. So, first of all, Her- Herb Carnegie was announced in the Builder class. Uh, in the player class, Daniel Alfredson was wow. in, has been announced, which I know a lot of people uh, no, were hoping no, for. Relevant to Canucks fans, Roberto Luongo will be going to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Extreme Look, we're going to have full reaction, but just right off the bat, I will say extremely, extremely well-deserved uh, for Roberto Luongo. Now, we also have confirmation Henrik Sedin is going in to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, of course, Strancer... Joining Henrik Sedin in the Hockey Hall of Fame will be his brother, Daniel Sedin. So let's go three, all three. Three all-time, all-time Canucks icons, Canucks greats, including, of course, the Sedin twins, holders of <laughs> innumerable franchise records. Uh, Henrik, longtime captain, both with their numbers retired in the rafters at Rogers Arena, and now will be members of the Hockey Hall of Fame, and they will go in in the same class as Roberto Luongo, of course. Fantastic years 
uh, with the Canucks in addition to fantastic years with the Florida Panthers and starting his career with the New York Islanders. So there you have it. There, it, there was a chance that today was going to be a very Canuck-heavy, Vancouver-heavy Hockey Hall of Fame class, and it officially is with all three of Henrik Sedin, Daniel Sedin, and Roberto Luongo uh, getting the call to the hall. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Look, we're going we're gonna to switch gears now. We're going to talk about this. Uh, obviously, we'll try to get back into Stanley Cup and offseason stuff throughout you know the course of the show, but this is the big news of the day here in Vancouver. Your reaction, hearing it right now, Drance. No brainers. Across the board. Like, across the board, it would have been outrageous had any one of those three players not been on the first ballot. Absolute, no doubt, Hall of Famers. In Henrik Sedin's case, and, and, you know, and, and Daniel's too, but Henrik in particular because he's a heart winner, I'm going to give you the full list of non-goaltenders to win the Hart Trophy and not be in the Hall of Fame if they're eligible. The name's Tommy Anderson. Have you ever heard the name? No. <laughs> so Tommy Anderson was a defenseman who had to convert for forward while playing for the Brooklyn Americans in 1942. And he had to convert for forward because a lot of the NHL players went overseas to fight in a war. He had 41 points in 48 games and was the last non-original six player to win the Hart Trophy for like 40 years, right? Because obviously thereafter it was all original six. It was the original six era. Anderson's career ended basically because the year after he won the Hart Trophy... He enlisted in the Canadian military and went over to fight. Henrik Sedin doesn't belong on a list with Tommy Anderson. Like, you know, clearly, clearly, the, the context there is so wildly different. To make Henrik Sedin the one Hart Trophy winner who's not in the Hall of Fame, I mean, it doesn't hold, it doesn't hold water. Uh, you know, over the course of his NHL career, Henrik Sedin ranked fifth in scoring. Fifth in scoring over an 18-year period. Behind only Jerome McGinley, Hall of Famer. Sidney Crosby, going to be a Hall of Famer. Jumbo Joe, going to be a Hall of Famer. And Alex Ovechkin, the best goal scorer of all time. So what are we talking about? Like, clearly, Henrik Sedin had to go in. He had to go in on the first ballot. There's really no doubt there. Uh, Daniel, by the way, ranks seventh on that list. The guy sandwiching between the twins uh, is Marion Hossa, Hall of Famer. So, you know, all of the players who were as good as the twins were during their careers are Hall of Famers. These guys are no doubters, and sometimes I'd get subscribers at The Athletic, they'd say things like, will you make the case for the Twins being in the Hall of Fame? And I never did, mostly because I didn't want to pretend it was an argument. It's not. Their their case is absolutely ironclad, airtight, no doubt about it, the Hall of Fame got it right. And on top of all of that, you have to think about what the Hall should recognize, and for me, the biological miracle of two identical twins who spend their entire hockey playing lives working together and as a result figure out a unique geometry to the game uh, figure out how to use the, the behind the net area in a way it never had been uh, figure out how to use the high slot right the high slot sort of relief tip pass the Sedin tip is is what's what it's called in some sort of one through one playbooks um, there's a whole bunch of things that they completely changed the slap pass I mean there's all sorts of weird moves hockey moves team-level playing style things that the Twins were, if not originators of, the, the guys that absolutely married it, right? The, the, the drop pass in the neutral zone. There, there's a ton of, ton of things about the game of hockey that legitimately Henrik and Daniel changed in terms of how it's played, in terms of how teams attack with a team concept. 
no doubter, Hall of Famers. Congratulations to two of the classiest gentlemen who've ever played for this organization. And clearly, this franchise's two greatest players. The Canucks now have a pair of Hall of Fame quality players who spent their entire careers in Vancouver. Until today, that wasn't the Mm -hmm. case. This is a huge day for the franchise. Well-deserved to two tremendous people. It really is remarkable the degree to which their legacy just keeps growing, right? As you said, now the first Canucks to play their entire career here and then go on to join the Hall of Fame after their playing careers. And of course, they're still with the team in a front office capacity. And the thing with the Sedins is really what settled it and what made it a slam dunk was the back-to-back Art Ross years, of course, with Henrik winning the Hart Trophy. Uh, they both won the uh, the Ted the Ted Lindsay, uh, and then you know, Daniel falls just short of winning his own heart, losing to Corey Perry. And I think you could make an extremely persuasive case that Daniel should have won that heart as well. But whatever. You had twin brothers playing on the same team, playing on the same line, win back-to-back Art Ross trophies. And when you add up the rest of their career, and then as you said, you just think of how unique what they did was, not just in hockey, but really across all of sports. And I think, you know, I was I was a fan. I wasn't a part of the media until after they retired. So I watched their entire careers purely as a fan. And just the experience of when they were at their peaks, sitting down and turning on a Canucks game, the degree of regularity which they would do something, not only that you'd never see other players do, but you'd never really even thought that other players would try, right? Like, they, they were completely unique to watch. While excelling, while excelling at the highest level possible, winning incredible individual individual accolades, helping their team have a lot of success, obviously not the ultimate success, but have an awful lot of success. And I think just that reality that they were completely unique in hockey, in sports as twins who not only thrived together, but thrived in large part because they had this incredible twin chemistry. And we all we all know the jokes about Sedinary and twin wonder power and all of that. And it was true. They played the game completely different than anybody else was doing it. And just for that fact alone, I think the Hockey Hall of Fame had to recognize them. And again, th- then you just look at their numbers and their accolades and all of that. Slam dunk. And I'm not surprised to see uh, that they are going to be going in uh, to the Hall of Fame. It's it, it would have been really, really shocking to see them not. It would have been call. a miscarriage of justice. The Hall of Fame got this right. It was a no-brainer. Anything else would have been stupefying, ridiculous, absurd. So, good, good. That didn't happen. Hall of Fame, nailed <laughs> you it. You did it. And nailed it. The, the Hockey Hall of Fame has, uh, has received its fair share of very valid criticism <laughs> in the past, but they absolutely got this one right with the Sedins. Lots of text coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen says, uh, do Daniel and Henrik get their own plaques or do they share? No, no. They will be going in as individuals, believe it or not. Uh, this one as well says, uh, unsigned, all three I considered heroes growing up. I couldn't be more ecstatic as a longtime fan. And it is pretty cool that the three of them, three key figures, of course, on the best team in franchise history in 2011, will be going into the Hall of Fame uh, together this year. And of course, we should, you know, we'll continue to talk about the Sedins, what they've meant to Vancouver, what this means for their legacy. But also very cool, Drancer, to have Roberto Luongo going in to the Hall of Fame as well. And Marcus and Gibson's text in, Luongo is definitely deserving of the call. He was and may be the last goalie to surpass 450 career goalie wins, especially with how little goalies play now, uh, much unlike the 70-plus games goalies used to play a year. And the thing with Luongo is it wouldn't have shocked me if he wasn't inducted today, this year. I definitely think he was always going to get in just because 
if you were kind of that old school traditionalist who needed to have a certain amount of hardware uh, attached to somebody that you were going to vote for, you could point and say, well, he didn't win the Vesna, you know, uh, didn't win the Stanley Cup. But if you look at the totality of his career and the incredible numbers he put up, the incredible consistency that he displayed for so long with such an extraordinary workload, I definitely think was this was the right call. And the interesting thing with, you know, Luongo not uh, winning the Vesna. It's true, but you also look at the players he lost it to, and it's like, well, okay, he had incredible years, but other goalies just had slightly better years. What are you going to do? You're also, really going to hold it against that guy? Also, go look at the save percentage numbers in some of the seasons that he lost it to Brodeur and tell me that Luongo shouldn't have won the Vesna. You know, I, I'm I'm sorry. Lou, Lou on, tr- on true talent and actual ability, should have won a couple of Vesnas. The other interesting there's thing two is... Years, there's two years in particular. There's one, I think it was 06, right before he became a Vancouver Canuck. The first year out of the lockout, that was one where he absolutely should have won. And then his first season in Vancouver, I think you can make a pretty strong case that he should have won it that year as well. The first year in Vancouver is really fascinating because... Might be one of the greatest goaltending seasons we've ever he seen. He actually finished second in the Hart voting that yeah, year. Yeah, it was, it was a Shesterkin-like season. Yeah, Crosby won the Hart, then Luongo was second. Brodeur finished third in the Hart, but he beat Luongo for the Vesna. So just a really weird quirk, but... He had no shortage of Vesna caliber seasons, even if kind of the vagaries of voting and what other guys were doing at the time uh, didn't really add up and, and, and actually allow him to claim the award. There was no doubt ever that he was truly one of the elite goalies at his peak in the NHL. And again, the thing that always stands out for me with Luongo is just the sheer volume, the workload. Yeah. Was, well, as Marcus and Gibson said, we're never going to see anything like that again. You know, let's let's quickly go over the Luongo resume because Luongo was as big a no doubter for me. I mean, you're right. There, I would. There was a little more suspense. I thought there was a chance Lou wouldn't be called on the first ballot. I didn't think there was any chance that the Twins wouldn't. I just didn't believe that they would mess that up. I thought the Twins were too unique, and I thought the Hart Trophy lock thing was just too powerful. You know, uh, you think about that Tommy Anderson thing. Like at some point, when you're going through a process, someone has the nut cards. Uh, to use a poker term, where where you play it and there's no rejoinder. It's like, there's only one guy. It's this guy who played in in the during the wars. Does this make sense as a comparable? And no one could possibly say yes. And that's it. Luongo didn't quite have that case because there is no Vesna and there's no Stanley Cup, right? And again, that would have been that would have been the reason for the delay. Totally. But there's a ton of other stuff, you know, including multiple Olympic gold medals. Uh, the game that he won in Vancouver for the Canadian Olympic team in 2010, considering that, you know, it's hard to remember now because now hockey, like we've become accustomed to Canada just winning gold. Like Canada wins gold and best on best and we're accustomed to it. But at the time, right, Canada had lost in 96 at the at that World Cup of Hockey. They'd lost in 98. They won in 02, but they had a brutal round robin performance and everyone was edgy as anything about it. And then they lost in 06 to, to Russia, right? So it was like not, you know, 2010 came in and it was like, are they going to lose gold on home soil? Like, oh my goodness. People started using the word soil a lot. You know, like people don't usually use the word soil to talk about their country. But all of a sudden, like for, I don't know why, but for 12 months prior to the 2010 Olympics, all of a sudden people were talking about like home soil. Like that's how, you know, reptile brain everyone was. That's how high the pressure was on that team. Obviously, Luongo comes in after the loss to the Americans in the round robin, a memorable game, plays really well, 
Stones Pavel Dimitra, a huge save to secure the gold medal game berth. And then for some reason, people blamed him for the tying goal late, even though Scott Niedermeyer, obviously a, an epic defenseman, and Shea Weber both missed. Like, they left Zach Parise. Zach Parise has three shots, three whacks at the puck alone, like completely unimpeded in front. And and some people wanted to blame the goalie just because it was Lou. Uh, anyway, whatever. The fact is, is Luongo's one of three goaltenders to play a thousand games. The other two are Martin Brodeur and Patrick Waugh, right? Um, he's 11 games short of 500 wins. There's only three goalies with 500 wins. That's Marc-Andre Fleury. That's Patrick Waugh. And that's Martin Marty Brodeur. Brodeur. And so he's fourth all time in that category. Um, I, I don't know what else. He's, he's also got, of the, of the guys we just listed, right? The guys who are ahead of him in terms of wins or games played, he's got the highest save percentage. He's the guy who, you know, he, I think it's eighth all time if you if you set the bar at something like 250 games, eighth all time best save percentage. Uh, that'll come down because goalies are so good now uh, over time. But the fact is, is that for for his era, he was the best. Uh, well, he was the best along with Henrik Lundqvist, and really he was one B to Henrik Lundqvist's one A. And Henrik Lundqvist also needs to be a no doubter Hall of Famer, despite some of the. He won some business, but he didn't win a cup. Didn't win a cup, yeah. Anyway, if you look over Luongo's career numbers, and it's important to note, too, that Luongo played his most meaningful hockey in this city, right? Not only was his crowning achievement as a victorious starting goaltender for the Canadian Olympic team in the Olympics that Vancouver hosted, but his Canucks years, and he will tell you this, were the best hockey years of his life, right? That team was at its best, at its peak. Uh, He was a huge reason why. You know, he'd have those slow Octobers, and then he'd just shut the door November November through February, and you'd, you'd wake up and look at the standings, and the Canucks would be 25 points clear of anyone else in the, in the Northwest Division. Those were good times, Jamie. Those were good times. If you look through his numbers, it's like 919, 919, 919, like clockwork. You know, I think he has one offseason in Vancouver in the, in the early part of his tenure which is when, you know, the Canucks missed the playoffs. They were too reliant on him early in the year. His wife, um, you know, had had a complicated birth in Florida. He was sort of going back and forth. Uh, the team also just didn't provide him with enough support. People blamed him for the Canucks missing the playoffs, even though he was the only reason they ever had a shot that year or the year prior. But even that off year, which I believe would be the second year, 2007, 2008, he had a 917 save percentage. Yeah. And that was an off year. At the time, people were like, that's an off year. And then he had one more. In 73 games. In 73 starts, by the way. And then he had one more off year, which was the year that he lost the job. Uh, well, yeah, so he had a 9.13 mixed in there uh, yeah. in 2009, 2010. Still above, still above average by the standard. Still above the average, but yeah, then he came back with 9.28, 9.19. He was injured in 2012, 2013, so only played 20 games, and it dipped down no, to no, 9.07. No, 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 he lost the job. Yeah, but it dipped. That was the year he lost the right, job. Right, and that was the year coming out of... So, uh, so, coming out of, so small sample, he didn't, yeah. play, he didn't you know, play as good to, as Schneider that season. But that's it. And then and then the next year he got traded and, and obviously he went on to be like a nine twenty goaltender again in multiple seasons with the Florida Panthers, even as his body was breaking down. Now, with the thing about goalies to remember, and I think this is an important conversation to have in this market and to keep in mind. Like it's one thing to be a really great goaltender, right? It's another thing to be at the quality where you're good enough on your own to drag a non playoff caliber team to the playoffs, right? And then it's another thing entirely to do that year after year after year after year after year to repeat it. The repeatability is what made Luongo so special. Every year out, Luongo was, you know, counted on. You could count on him to be the type of goaltender who could 
pull you to the playoffs even if you weren't all that good. And, you know, that type of repeatability does barely exists. Like, you go through the list, some of his contemporaries, even guys who are more decorated, one cups, guys like Corey uh, Crawford or Jonathan Quick, mm-hmm. they weren't those types of goalies. Some years they were unbelievable. Some years your team had to kind of overcome a down year from them, right? Like, that's Mike Smith, um, Marc-Andre Fleury. Go down the list. Luongo was the steadiest, most consistent goaltender uh, of his generation, with the exception of Henrik Lundqvist, which is an extraordinary company, and that has to be recognized, too. What made Lou so special was the consistency with which he maintained just an outrageously high level of performance over the course of a, of a lengthy career. Uh, he's a no-doubter Hall of Famer, too. I'm glad the Hall got it right. Uh, going to be a special night in Toronto when those three are inducted. Yeah, it's going to be really, really special. Uh, Pickles at Richmond says, Luongo and the Sedins getting in on the same ballot reminds me of the moment one of the Sedins scored against Luongo, and they hugged. Uh, another one, Surrey and Ryan says, very happy to see the Hockey Hall of Fame get it right. Key figures in the golden era of the Canucks. That that was Henrik's thousandth point. Yes. You'll recall. Yeah. yeah. That was awesome. It was very special. A very, very cool moment. A very cool moment. And, and, and I think Luongo was so upset. <laughs> like, you know, he was he of was Of course, you don't want to you don't want to give it up even if they're buddies of he, yours. Of he was not. he was happy for him, but he was also, you know, ah, oh, man, that's going to go on my reel. <laughs> uh Rager Texan absolutely deserving and the only thing that could have made it better was if McGillney got in and it was a Canucksapalooza at Hall of Fame weekend, but Alfredson was a fantastic player as well. We can Alf- get Alfredson had the political capital of people campaigning for him in a way that people haven't campaigned for McGillney. And this is one thing where Alex hasn't spoken in public in 15 years, right? We don't hear from him. And Alexander McGillney also should be in the Hall of Fame. No question about it. But, you know, he hasn't come out and really talked about it. He hasn't really told his story. Like, what part of the reason that Alexander McGillney should be in the Hall of Fame was that it, when the you know, Iron Curtain was still standing. Like, McGillney was the guy who'd go to the World Junior Tournaments and come back with a boombox and jeans, right? Like, he was the guy who dreamt bigger from that era of Russian players, and then he defected. He was and, a trailblazer. And led the way. He was an absolute trailblazer. He meaningfully changed the game, and then he came in and scored 76 goals. I mean, I mean Alexander McGillney should be in the Hall of Fame. There's no question about it. He was part of some epic New Jersey Devils teams later in his career, uh, rounded out as a two-way player, one of the best guys. Like you talk to guys like Matt Sundin, talk to guys like Travis Green, who played with him, and they'll say he was the best player they on every sheet he ever stepped on. Like e- you know, even Hall of Fame caliber players like Sundin recognize that uh, he should be there for sure. But I think he's a player who could help his cause a lot if he spoke a little bit, if he just sort of let his story be told again. I feel like it would remind people why he's such an important figure in the last 25 years of hockey history and why there's no doubt that his, you know, um, plaque should be hanging at the intersection of, of front and young in Toronto. Yeah, and I wonder, the the thing with the Hockey Hall of Fame process is that it can create these kind of backlogs sometimes, right? Because you're only putting in a certain amount of players. And this year you had the Sedins, so that's a two for one, but it takes up two spots who you pretty much had to put in. Roberto Luongo who had a very, very compelling case, and then Daniel Alfredson, who's a person that people have been really campaigning campaigning for, and as you said, kind of had that public support uh, in a way that Alex McGillney necessarily hasn't. I think McGillney is starting to get that kind of public recognition. Like every every year now where the Hockey Hall of Fame announcement is made, 
his name comes up and people are saying, why isn't this guy in? He should be in. He should be in. And I think as that drumbeat continues, he will get in eventually. It might just take a bit of a different year where there's not guys kind of ahead of him in, in the priority list, at least in the eyes of the Hockey Hall of Fame. But I do think he'll get in eventually. The Strombone One account has tweeted, best line in hockey, Sadin Sadin Luongo, right? Uh, which is which is classic. One last one last quick story, and then we'll and then we'll go to break. Um, I remember watching because I was working in Florida at the time, right? I was working with Lou at the time, and I remember watching the Twins' last game on TV. I think it was after, I, it was either after a Panthers game or the, or the night after. But I just remember um, when they scored the sorry. So this was the last home game, the last game in Vancouver. And when they scored that overtime winner against Arizona, I just remember getting a text from <laughs> Roberto, so excited about it, so excited for them, uh, making the Jeter comp, right? <laughs> and uh, and I think that you know speaks to the level of affection that the Twins teammates had for them, but also between these three great Canucks who are now going into the Hall of Fame together, pretty cool, very very special. And you know we got to we got a chance to celebrate the Sedins uh, before the pandemic when their number went up when their numbers went up to the rafters. That was really cool, and that was also. You know, it was such a celebration of those teams they played on as well. And now to have all three of them going in together, it's going to be really special for Canucks fans to have another chance to celebrate the Sedins, to celebrate Luongo, and kind of by extension again to celebrate those fantastic teams uh, that they were a part of. And as somebody said, you know, the golden era, the true golden era of Canucks hockey. Get your thoughts. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Again, Daniel, Henrik Sedin, and Roberto Luongo all going to the Hockey Hall of Fame this year. We'll keep reading your text. We'll talk more about that. Uh, We'll try to get back into the Stanley Cup. Yeah, the Stanley Cup was handed out last night as well. As I said, very, very busy day in hockey. uh, And maybe if we have time, we'll look ahead to the Canucks offseason a little bit as well. Lots more on the way. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. They unfurled their predator pose. Things in this house are out of this world. This is Pete. And, you know, it's uh, Lenny and Mike Gardner. Uh, so if it wasn't the Hall of Fame, were you not going to take the call? I'm kidding. <laughs> I thought it was my insurance company. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, there you go. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Trance with that, you. That was Daniel for yes, sure. That we was... don't actually know, do we? No, no, we did. We do. Yeah, Andy... that's Daniel. Are... You know, you know, Daniel's got the quips. That's how you know. <laughs> the moment you hear, like if you're ever confused while talking to the twins, and you shouldn't be, you should be able to tell them apart if you've spent any time around them. But the moment you get a really good quip, you know it's Daniel. So there you go. That was Daniel Sedin getting the call from Lanny McDonald that he has been inducted into the hockey Hall of Fame, and uh, I mean, fortunately, they're not inducting millennials, I guess yet. Although maybe the Sedians are like older millennials, but no. as you know, we don't we don't pick up our phones, so it's going to get a, <laughs> gonna, the, the process is going to get a lot harder. Have to text it. <laughs> Uh, but if you are just joining us, uh, I'll run down the entire class joining the Hockey Hall of Fame this year. Of course, Henrik Sedin. Daniel Zadine and Roberto Luongo, three ex-Canucks in the player category. Daniel Alfredson as well. I also wanted to mention Rika Salonen, a Finnish women's hockey player going in as a player, and Herb Carnegie going in as a builder. So congratulations to the entire 2022 Hockey Hall of Fame 
class. And, of course, you can keep it locked here on Sportsnet 650 all day for reaction, for guests, all of it, chances to share your thoughts on the Hall of Fame class. Big, big day for a trio of franchise greats for the Vancouver Canucks. 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. I did want to just pivot back to the Stanley Cup final, Drancer, and the fact that the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup for 2022. They are the champions this year, defeating the back-to-back champs, the Tampa Bay Lightning, last night. We talked a little bit just about Game 6 and how it unfolded uh, in the first segment before the Hockey Hall of Fame announcement. Looking a little bit more big picture, and this is something we talked about going into the series, right? What would the league take from a win in either direction, right? From a Tampa Bay three-peat or the Colorado Avalanche breaking through and getting the job done. And I think that conversation is still really interesting, especially because of what we saw last night and the style the Avalanche won with. Because there's sometimes where, and look, you could make this, you could build this case for the Tampa Bay Lightning. There's sometimes where this narrative gets built that, hey, this team, they had all this offensive talent and they played with, you know, uh, panache and, and flair and speed, but they didn't win until they learned how to do it in the playoffs, till they changed their identity, till they really bought into how things are supposed to go. And with Colorado, okay, yeah, they had to play great defense to win last night, but they did it their way. They did it the Sorry, Colorado so the Avalanche Avs. way. So did the Avs. People overrate, people way overrate the, like, Gaudreau and Maroon thing. It's not like Yan Gord and Blake Coleman aren't skilled players, too. Oh, for sure. You know, like, uh, they have this hulking defense. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. People build that case for the Lightning, right? But yeah. I don't think, I think it's oh, much harder never, to build never, that case for the Colorado Avalanche. Never underrate the troglodytes in this sport's ability to uh, filter reality through a narrow prism that features a morality play on toughness and, and beating up, up opponents in the alley. You see, the Avs actually had to learn how to, how to win tough by tra- trading for Josh Manson. Never underrate don't, this. Don't never, put, don't, never, come on. Don't put never, that out there. Never, don't put that out never there. Never underrate. Never underrate the ability of this sport to resist change. Never. Obviously, the two teams that just contested the Stanley Cup final are the smartest teams in hockey, right? This is a victory for the nerds, and everyone knows it, and that's why it makes everyone so mad, right? That, oh, no, you're underrating. Look at what Tampa did to build, uh, bring in two third-line wingers and a fourth-line winger. Oh, my goodness. They learned the lessons. John Tortorella taught them. That you need, stop it, stop it. The Lightning have won, were won back-to-back because they were the most efficient organization in hockey. They were the best at marshalling every aspect of the organization, including creative cap management, in service of winning. A remarkable achievement by the Lightning over the past three years. And the Colorado Avalanche, similarly, went in one direction, building this enormously slow team to play the way that Patrick Waugh wanted it to. It failed spectacularly. And then they completely changed direction with, you know, a variety of innovative folks brought in a director of analytics in Eric Parnas, um, a very progressive assistant general manager in, in Chris McFarland, who's who's poised surely to become the future GM of that team. They changed directions. They prioritized speed. Look at that blue line. That blue line is like the dream blue line for any sort of analytics evangelist over the past few years. Do you know who the biggest of Taves, McCarr, um, Bowen Byram, and Sam Girard is? Is it Bowen Byram? It's No, it's Devon Taves yeah. at 6-1. Do you know how many of those four defensemen are listed at over 200 pounds? Zero. Not a single one. Not a single one. 
So, yeah, just keep trying to build a team that can get in because anything can happen. No, it can't. Not against not against the card counters at the table like Tampa Bay and Colorado. You've got to aim a lot higher. Which brings us to the start of the Canucks offseason. Can we do this a little bit? Let's do it. All, look, look, my only point was with Colorado is... Yeah, never never take for granted that people are going to try to twist that narrative in a certain way. I just think it's so much harder to do after what we saw last night. But so they, much harder well, to do. Well, look at the size they brought in with Nico Sturm and Josh Manson and Jack Johnson. They don't win the cup without Jack Johnson playing those third pair minutes, Jamie. Oh, come on. Come on. I'm serious. You don't think those discussions are happening right now across NHL boardrooms? Oh, yikes. yikes. They are. They are. I did just before we we pivot to the Canucks because I do want to hit the it's Canucks just, off it's season. It's easier to be mediocre, man. I did want to give a shout out to Bonebuyer, BC oh, guy, awesome Vancouver kid, or sorry, Vancouver Some Giants. Serious struggles the last two years. I mean, oh, you know, he he was interviewed on the ice last night, and you know, he basically said six months ago I couldn't have possibly imagined this. And not only was he on the ice with the Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup, he was a major, major factor in helping them do it. What did we talk about he played the going most into minutes. the series? He played the most five-on-five minutes of any defender in that series. What like, we- it wasn't Sergeyev, it wasn't Makar, it wasn't Taves, it wasn't Hedman. It was Bowen it, Byram. It was Bowen Byram. Set up a Nathan McKinnon goal last night, and what did we talk about before the series? Okay, how is Colorado going to fare when Kale Makar and Devontae's are off the ice? Well, they did really well, in large part, Thanks to Bowen Byram. Uh, and, and I just wanted to make sure that we spent a little bit of time celebrating what he was able to 100%. do in his comeback. And and before we move on from Henrik, Daniel, and Roberto Luongo all going into the, uh, the Hall of Fame at the same time, text comes in from Roberto, and he says, of, of going into the Hall of Fame, um, going in with the twins is the best part. <laughs> that is the wholesome content yeah, you love that it. you need to see. You that is fantastic it. stuff from Roberto Luongo right there. And we will, as a, as a station, we will effort, as they say, to get uh, all three of the Sedins and Roberto Luongo all, on the station all three of the ASAP. Twins? You're also going for Martin? <laughs> <laughs> we will, we be, will, I mean, it would be interesting. We will effort to get all of them uh, on the station ASAP this week to talk <laughs> about three. going into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> all three twins. The Sedins and Roberto Luongo. Come on Okay, now. Come I understand. On. The triplets. Come on. With, okay, I want to get into the Canucks offseason just a little bit, really quickly here. This is one of my favorite days of the year, not just because three extremely classy, gentlemanly, phenomenal Canucks players made the Hall of Fame, and not just because I got to see the cup paraded around the ice in front of a full building, which is just beautiful. Having been in attendance for the empty, like the no fans in the stands cup celebration, yeah. It still makes me sad to think of those Tampa Bay Lightning players doing, like, really tight circles. Yeah. Like, it just, it still upsets me. So seeing it last night, that that's still, you know, I might be a cynical... Well, I was going to say, are you negative. much of a sap as I am for it? 100%. It's It's incredible, it's the man. Best. Like, the, the emotion is just there's, unreal. There's no trophy celebration like it in sports. I love that each player gets a moment with the trophy. I like that the coverage of it extends, you know, as the players take their time. I love the families on the ice. I think the NHL nails like the thing the nhl does better than anyone else by far is the trophy celebration it is phenomenal anyway with regards to today there's one other thing that happens today jamie the bookies post their nhl futures they're their outrights for the 2022-23 nhl season and i love this because it's a first gut check before the moves of the offseason, before the Sturm and Drang of the next three weeks kicks in, it's like a gut check. What do 
the people with real skin in the game, money on the line, think of this team as it stands today, right? And so I, I went over and perused the odds at play now, and, and here's the highlights. The Canucks are 41-1 to at playnow.com to win the Stanley Cup. Play now has them equal with the LA Kings, tied for fourth in the Pacific Division behind Vegas, Calgary, Edmonton, and then tied with those teams. 16th in the league. They're tied for 16th in the league. And they're tied in a wild card spot, effectively. Like the like tied for eighth in the West with the LA Kings, the Dallas Stars, and the Vancouver Canucks. So the books sorry, as the who's the third there you said with the Vancouver Canucks. Sorry, so. the Canucks, the Kings, and the Dallas Stars are forty one to one. Okay. And that's sort of the level that play now puts the Canucks at. Uh, a wild card team entering this offseason. Now, play now, if I were to wager on hockey, which of course I don't, is you know, a BC-based book, right? So the Canucks are the public team for Play Now. And as a result, Play Now is a little bit outside the consensus. If you look at the other Vegas books, if you look at Vegas, the Play Now odds are a little bit outside the consensus. The Vegas consensus rates the Canucks 19th, tied for 19th in the NHL in terms of Stanley Cup odds going into this upcoming offseason. Fifth in the Pacific Division and tied for ninth in the West with Nashville and Winnipeg behind the seven teams in the West that at least won one playoff game (laughs) this past year and the Vegas Golden Knights, right? So on the outside of the playoff bubble and in a mix of teams where clearly you're not going to give them too long of odds because you've got Saros, you've got Hellebuck, you've got Demko, you know, Vegas doesn't want to get hosed by a hot goaltender. So there's, there's some value there if you believe in those goalies, but realistically that's the grouping. I think that's about right. Like, I think that makes sense. And I think it's important to gut check where this team is as we begin to discuss some of the specifics. And we'll get into all of it this week. And you can go read The Athletic. I've got a piece on what a perfect offseason might look like for the Canucks up now that gets into everything from, you know, a Besser compromise deal to a Jason Dickinson buyout to, you know, extension or trade decisions on Horvat Miller. So go check that out at theathletic.com. But grounding everything we discuss, I think it's important to note that... You know, in a world where we don't heed Han Solo's advice and, and in fact, tell everyone the odds, the Canucks enter this offseason widely seen as a non-playoff team, right? And if you think about what we saw last night, if you think about the level that those teams are at, I think the big question is, how do you get from here to there? And is it worth prioritizing the short term to juke your odds so that you may be the 12th best team in hockey? Or do you need to take a more circuitous route? Do you need to be a little bit more mindful of the long term? I, d- I don't think our, our listeners have any suspense about how we feel about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But the Vegas odds for me are a good gut check, particularly because this is a t- team, this is an organization that was surprised by how this season played out, right? Shocked that they were a non-playoff team this season. And because they finished so strong, and yet the Vegas odds don't seem to have modified their stance. Like Vegas itself sees the Canucks still as a 90 90- four-point team or a 92-point team, not as the 108-point team that they looked like they were under Bruce Boudreaux for 60 games. And so this is another thing, you know, I often get told, like, how much do you need to see of the Canucks under Boudreaux to believe they're real? Well, I at least want to see it. I at least want to see Vegas change their mind. I at least want to see the people who have actual money on the line, not just prideful sports takes, not just because they're fans of laundry, but have real skin in the game. I at least want to see them be convinced, right? 
I mean, the burden of proof shouldn't be on me if Vegas is still rating the Canucks as a non-playoff team. And going into this offseason, that's where the Canucks sit. And I think that's really important grounding for what we talk about in terms of offseason priorities and what to expect over the next three weeks. Yeah, I think the key thing for me is it doesn't have to be this idea of a, a tear-it-down rebuild, right? And we get people still texting in, you know, hey, the Colorado Avalanche finished dead last, right? That's what the Canucks should be aspiring to in that kind of build. I don't think it has to be anything so drastic. I certainly don't think we will see anything so drastic given, you know, what we've heard from uh, from the new management group, also what we know of how this organization likes to operate. But if we're just kind of thinking about it in terms of those odds, right? And, and even beyond just looking at the odds, I think the the names of the teams you listed would intuitively make a lot of sense to people, right? To have the Canucks kind of in the, that same group, the same tier with a lot of those teams. How do you get the Canucks out of that tier into the tier where you feel like they're legit Stanley Cup contenders? I think just the key for me is it doesn't have to be about doing that and probably shouldn't be about trying to do that for this upcoming season, but it also doesn't have to be kicking it, you know, four or five years down the road. I do think there's at least potential, there's at least enough of a chance to do it in kind of a, an in-between timeline that it makes sense for this management group to try. Now, that's an extremely challenging task. You're trying to kind of serve two masters at once. That can be really, really difficult. I understand all of that, but that's the way I'm looking at this Canucks offseason. We're going to dive deep into all of the dilemmas and all of the difficult choices they have to make, you know, going into next week with the draft and free agency and all of that. But to me, this is really about laying the groundwork so that next offseason, if you are, you know, if a bunch of things go your way, you feel like you have a legitimate chance to say, okay, now we're going to try. Now we're going to start to really climb the ladder, right? Or the off season after that. But you you got to do a lot of groundwork this summer, I think, to even put yourself in a position. You have to, you know, sort out your salary cap sheet a little bit. Make sure you're not locking into some unwise long term bets on some of your high end forwards. You have to. This off season's work might not launch you in a contender next season. But I think it really does have the potential to lay the groundwork for potentially becoming a contender, you know, a year or two down the road, Drancer. It's going to be hard to get there, too, right? I mean, let's go through some of the... Well, it's interesting because, okay, you have, I guess the better way of putting it, you have, you know, up at the Athletic right now with Harmon Dial. It's a long-term plan. Yeah, we're not... What would a perfect offseason look like? interesting way to think of that is would a perfect a perfect offseason in your eyes wouldn't make them Stanley Cup contenders not no, this year no not going into September but as I said it would lay the groundwork to jump up in that tier at some point down the road and you kind of have to nail those and, things right and now relatively quickly right I mean this is also not a plan to bottom out right exactly this is, a, this exactly. is a make the playoff plan but also keep your eye on the future plan because I don't think it's realistic to expect this organization to bottom out here here's what happened last year we laid out a conservative plan and an aggressive plan. The aggressive plan was basically what the Canucks followed, and the conservative plan was keep an eye on the future. And first of all, no one really liked the conservative plan among our readers, right? People were like, no, we like aggression. And then the club followed the aggressive plan (laughs) without paying heed to our better plan, which was the more conservative direction. And so this year, we're just like, no, we're only doing one. There's only one path forward. This is the right path forward. We should have done that last year. Not that the organization actually read our work or cared, just that it was foreseeable how the, what this club had to do to be aggressive and, and the risks that it would take on. And those risks came to bear, uh, especially in the first 25 games of the season, and, and wasted the club season. 
in addition to putting them on even less stable footing going forward. Like, everything needs to be done, in my view, to position this club to take a quantum leap forward in two, three years to be at the, you know, top five Stanley Cup odds going into a season as opposed to 19. Like, come on. We want to see something great. Now, as a way of quickly captioning this, I guess we're, we're against the clock, so we'll, we'll do it again. I'll, I'll actually scrap this. We'll come back to it tomorrow. But, you know, I, I think the overall lesson of both, right, and, and what we saw yesterday, it takes so much, so much talent, so much going right, so many smart organizational processes in place to be in that game last night, to be at that level. And we're at the start of a new regime beginning to put their footprint on this club. To expect an overnight turnaround, I think, is ridiculous. To expect them to just double down on a roster that missed the playoffs for the sixth time in seven years is, to me, not really a path forward. And it's going to require a ton of work, even if they do decide to try and keep this core together, which sets us up for a really fascinating week and a really fascinating next three weeks in the lead-up to Free Agent Frenzy Day. And I'll just uh, quickly, to finish the show, read this quote from Jim Rutherford that a, a texter alerted me to in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line from an article by your athletic colleague Pierre Lebrun where he kind of surveys other executives around the league to get their thoughts on how Joe Sackick uh, and the rest of the Avalanche front office built the Stanley Cup champion. And this is from Jim Rutherford. He said, Joe had a plan. He was patient when lots of people were getting impatient and he stuck to it. He's a very smart hockey guy. He knew what it took to build a hockey team. He's built an incredible team. So there you go. Jim Rutherford praising the patience of Joe Sackick. Let's if, go. Uh, if you're trying to read the tea leaves a little bit. A very interesting quote from the Canucks president of Hockey Operations. More reaction to the news that Daniel Sedin, Henrik Sedin, and Roberto Luongo all going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. That is coming up on The People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda. And all day because you've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.